Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and the president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. In this chapter two of our second podcast season, we'll explore the theme of creativity and community restored. We're in a time of deep and angry division with fractures visible everywhere, worsened by the isolation brought on by the pandemic and the insular nature of our own social media streams. So how can we heal? How can we faithfully and thoughtfully seek the common good in an age of alienation? The conversations we've selected include authors, artists, scholars, and those actively engaged in the work of building and restoring community. It's our hope that you'll find inspiration and ideas here to creatively engage your own community as an instrument of grace and reconciliation. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of these conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. So whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. One of the questions it seems that we all have to wrestle with is how to understand and respond to the deep divisions that have so poisoned relationships, split families, fractured our society, and even undermine the practices of our democracy, such that the Secretary of State recently called domestic division our greatest national security vulnerability. So how do we contend with the fear and the anger that we encounter both in our personal relationships and in the public square? And how do we envision and encourage means of bringing hope and healing to a hurting culture? Obviously these are thorny issues, but it's hard to imagine two people who have wrestled with those questions with more intellectual rigor, insight, or grace than our guest today. Both of our guests are public intellectuals who hold very different religious and political convictions. They've both written both prolific, prolifically and sometimes provocatively on controversial issues. And they've also developed a friendship over a shared commitment to the topic before us. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and a professor of ethical leadership at NYU's Stern School of Business. In addition to his many scholarly publications, he is the author of three major books, two of which are New York Times bestsellers, including The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, and The Righteous Mind, why good people are divided by politics and religion. He's been named a top 100 global thinker by Foreign Policy Magazine, one of the 65 world thinkers of the year by Prospect Magazine, and his four TED Talks have been uh, viewed more than 7 million times. Joining him is Pete Weiner. Pete is a vice president and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, as well as a columnist for the New York Times and a contributing editor to the Atlantic Magazine. He previously served, served both as a presidential speechwriter and as the director of the Office of Strategic Initiatives, also known as Strategery for President Bush. He is a widely published author whose writing has appeared not only regularly in the New York Times, but also in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, Time Magazine, National Affairs, and Christianity Today, among many others. His several books include City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era, and his most recent work, The Death of Politics. He is also, I am very proud to say, a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. So Jonathan and Pete, welcome. Thank you, Cherie. 
Thanks, Cherie. It's great to be uh, to be with you. Thanks for hosting this. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you both here, and we will just dive right in. So, John, you know, there have always been divisions in the country. Uh, anyone who can sort of go back and just think historically about not just the Civil War, but the deep divisions at the start uh, of our nation's founding. But you've argued that there's something different going on now, that not only are our cleavages deep, but they may also be starting to be somewhat different in nature, more ideologically extreme, but less coherent, and perhaps arising less out of a loyalty to a group or idea than simply an aversion to the other side. What's going on? Um, so I've been I've been concerned about political polarization and how how nasty things were getting, uh, and my original research was on how morality varies across cultures or nations. Uh, and around 2004, I switched it over to looking at left and right, which were becoming like different nations that lived in different worlds. Now, of course, if we could go back to those days when things worked so much better uh, than they do today, I think I would. Uh, but um, things have gotten a lot worse since then. And I'm sure we'll get into this. There's many reasons why. But the number one reason, I think the number one reason why things just got so weird in the 2010s, and not just for America, but for a lot of Western democracies, I believe, is changes in the ecosystem of media, where for a brief period of time, we had broadcasting. We have to all remember, late 20th century was the anomaly. Before then, newspapers were partisan and nasty and had low standards. So the mid to late 20th century is the anomaly, broadcasting. And then you get narrow casting with cable TV, and Fox News in particular has a big impact on the Republicans. And then you get the internet and now you've got, anybody can confirm any conspiracy, conspiracy they wanna confirm. You just Google it and you'll find evidence. And then you get social media. And the key thing that I've been focusing on is the way that social media changed between 2009 and 2011. Before then it wasn't very polarizing. It was just, you know, here are my friends, here are my, the bands that I like. But when Facebook puts on the like button, Twitter puts on the retweet button and then they copy each other's innovations. Now suddenly both platforms are really engaging and they use algorithms based on that engagement to optimize the news feeds for engagement, which is typically anger. And so everything gets weird in the 2010s because social media connects us up a lot, which you'd think is good. Historically, it's good to be connected, but it connects us in a bizarre way that has never happened before which is whatever we say is being rated by strangers. And we are now not just like talking to each other, we're talking to the strangers who are rating us. And so this is like, like changing the gravitational force of the universe. Like everything got weird after 2012. So that's my opening piece about why this time is different from any other time. Pete, one of the things I wanted to ask you is it, it increasingly it seems like not along with our polarization, we're not only kind of divided over what is right or wrong, but increasingly over what is true or false. Why are we having such a hard time sorting out what has actually happened? And, and then related to that, I'd sort of love for you to comment on the fact that you know, our democratic pluralism helps us to kind of coexist with differences about right and wrong. But what happens when we, the people, can't figure out true or false? Yeah, um, to answer your last question first, um, a lot of bad stuff happens. I mean, I think in the end, if you have an epistemic crisis, if you can't agree on what's true and false, if you don't have a common set of facts, a common understanding of what reality, self-government gets very, very difficult uh, because persuasion becomes um, impossible. In terms, of, let me comment very quickly on what, what John said and then also this ep epistemic crisis because I completely agree with him. I should say that I probably learned more from John on a variety of issues over the last 10 years than anybody, both in terms of confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, but, but also how human psychology works, which has really helped me both in politics and, and honestly in, in my conversations and faith as, as well. Mm -hmm. In addition to the social media, uh, which, which I think has, has added, added a kind of jet fuel to, to, to all of these things, you know, there, the soil was, in a sense, prepared for some of this bad stuff to happen. So a lot of these trends, polarization has been in motion for many decades. We've had geographic sorting. We've had the two-party sorting. So, you know, when I was growing up in the 1980s, when, when I was being formed politically, you had liberal Republicans like Chuck Percy and Bob Packwood, Mark Hatfield, and you had conservative Democrats like Joe Lieberman, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Southern Democrats, 
And you don't have that anymore. So the, so the two parties began to polarize and that, that was a, a problem. And then you have a, an alienation, a loss of authority, an isolation, which is deep, <clears throat> I think, philosophical currents that explain that. And so in a way, the soil was ready for some of these, I would say, more pernicious you know, seeds to, to, to take root. You know, about the epistemic crisis, and, and I've had these conversations with people today that are just different than they were political conversations 15 or 20 years ago when, you know, when we worked together at Empower America in the 1990s. I would say some of it is really located in what, what John had mentioned, which is conspiracy theories have always existed, as you alluded to earlier, but there is now the capacity um, for people to link to different sources and create a community online, which lives in a, a different epistemic universe. And so you can have conversations with people on any number of issues and they will send you links to things. They're, they're conspiracy websites, you know, that may, that may link to it, but they feel like they have the force of authority. And the other thing I would say is there is this phenomenon called affective polarization, which is what now binds people to their political tribes or religious tribes is not necessarily or primarily a, a feeling of affirmation for their side as much as a distrust, alienation, and hatred for the other side. And so there's a demonization that goes on, a dehumanization that goes on. In the past, there would be a sense of, look, we disagree on issues, but it wasn't an indictment of a person in terms of their character. And, and that has happened, and we now have the kind of instruments to uh, fortify those, those, uh, those impressions. It's a complicated issue. Mm -hmm. John, you've written a lot about affective um, polarization. What is driving the demonization over the disagreement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's important to note that Americans are not getting more polarized in terms of their attitudes about issues. We're not really further apart. The polarization is called affective or emotional. It's the degree to which we hate each other, as Pete was saying. And that's really important to keep your eye on because when you really hate someone, you will believe anything that casts them in a bad light and you don't wanna check sources. You're, you know. And this has made us uniquely vulnerable to Russian manipulation uh, or anybody else, uh, because it turns out the Russians, you know, they put some fake stuff in, but they didn't have to put fake stuff in. And it turns out they didn't need the bots. Research at MIT, a big study showed that basically Americans hated each other so much by 2016 that whatever ammunition was put in, and let's remember the power of video, that's also new. The fact that as Pete said, you know, it's not just like a mimeographed sheet. It's like a video of, you know, a person explaining the conspiracy theory. So the, the affective polarization, the hatred uh, is, is way up and that drives everything else. And there are a couple of additional reasons for this increase in hatred, in addition to the media uh, changes that we were talking about. There's like so many of them. It's actually a really fun time to be a social scientist and a scary time to be an American. But the, many people point to the loss of a common enemy. That's the best way to unify people is to have Pearl Harbor be attacked or 9-11. But the, you know, throughout the 20th century, we had very clear enemies. And, and in the 90s, thank God that ended. But uh, without a common enemy, things kind of come apart. There are a rising, believe it or not, rising education uh, is one of the causes, political scientists say, mm -hmm. because people with a college degree are much more involved in symbolic uh, issues. Um, working class people are, they're more concerned about bread and butter issues. They're not gonna get all involved in the nuclear freeze. You know, when I was in college, that was the big issue or you know, things that don't directly concern their, their interests. So we have a more educated public on a, a more outrage inducing media platform without any common enemy, we fight, we're always gonna do the good evil game and we do it against each other rather than aimed externally. There's also rising diversity. Uh, we had very low diversity, very low immigration for much of the 20th century. And while diversity is great for the economy and for the creativity of, of industry, it, it does reduce social capital and trust unless managed very, very well. And we have not uh, often managed it very, very well. So there's all these reasons that are sort of like, there's a historical trend towards, towards mutual 
disliked, but it's really amplified by so many other features. And again, they all come to a head in the 2010s. So a question for you, Pete, and that is about our identities too, in that, you know, it seems like our politics are, are growing much more extreme and our identities are growing more political. And wanted to ask you about that in that Actually, I think it was a colleague of, of Jonathan's who did a study recently that posited that it used to be kind of the, you know, the foundations of our identity, the unmoved movers were, you know, our religion, our faith, our identity, and those are changing and actually kind of giving way such that politics is what moves that now. What has sort of thinned out our non-political identities such that they are now increasingly subsumed by the political? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and you expressed it well. I mean, I do believe that there has been an attenuation of these other identity-forming institutions in people's lives. There are a lot of them. Faith is, is one of them. It's not... It's not the, uh, the only one. I think part of that is, is a broader trend of mistrust toward institutions and a movement toward radical extreme individualism. And, and that, that's a philosophical current that's been in motion really in the middle part of the 20th century and gained, <clears throat> and gained a lot of momentum, particularly in the, in the mid and late 60s. But it went beyond that. It wasn't a trend, by the way, that was without benefits. I mean, there were some tremendous uh, progress and some tremendous injustices that were corrected um, by this movement, but I think it went, it went too far. So people became isolated and institutions uh, don't have the force, the shaping influence that they used to have. You also have the fact that a lot of people that run institutions, whether they're political or, or, or faith or other, view them, as our friend Yuval Levin has talked about, as performative rather than yeah. formative. So you have people who are becoming part of institutions and they don't see their task as <clears throat> soul shaping. They see it as platforms from which they, they perform. So I think that has happened. And at the same time, politics has come in and it has become much more <clears throat> attached to people's identity. I know. I add on to that. that a bit. Yes, please. Um, so yeah, I agree with everything Pete said, and that is another uh, feature that political scientists have called attention to in the 2010s is the increase to which politics is identity and performance. I think keep those two in mind. That's very, very important. Um, Ezra Klein in his uh, book, Why We're Polarized, he spoke to a lot of political scientists. And that's really the theme of the book is that politics has become identity. Okay, now I want to add on to what Pete was saying, some more about the psychology of religion. So this, the subtitle of my book is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, because I trace both back to our, our original human nature and the evolutionary processes that made us good at being in groups and competing with other groups. And that's true for both politics and religion. Um, I'm very pleased that even though I'm a, a Jewish atheist and I say so in the book, I've been invited to speak at a lot of Christian colleges and organizations. And in preparing to speak at uh, CCCU, I think it was the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, I finally looked up that quote that I'd heard from Pascal, there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of each man. Uh, but having written a book on great truths. I know you can't take the quote that you've heard, especially if it's from a foreign language, probably not exactly right. So here's what Pascal actually wrote, which is even more helpful. He said, uh, there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. So substantively, it's the same thing, but it gives you a much bigger or richer feeling of people trying, like hungry, trying to pull something in. They're, they have a, an emptiness. And I think what we're seeing as Christianity has receded uh, from not just public life, but you know, church, uh, church going, um, the, you know, the numbers for religion in America uh, uh, you know, are down for most things. And by far the fastest rising one is spiritual, but not religious. Well, if you're spiritual, but not religious, you're probably going to get involved with all kinds of political campaigns to fight injustice or whatever you think. But um, this, as religion has 
left more people, has received from people's lives, they're hungrier. As I see it, politics has really taken the place. And we can see that in the cultish nature uh, on the right, the, a, a, pers- you know, a, a cult of personality in the United States. I mean, this is really not appropriate uh, the, the way that I think uh, Donald Trump played that role sort of um, on the right. And in my world in universities and, uh, and on the left, uh, we have wokeness or intersectionality or other things. Um, John McWhorter and many others have been writing about how uh, this new political movement on the left has all the signs, not just of religion, but of Christianity specifically, of Christian worship and you know original sin. So anyway, I think that we to understand politics, we need to understand religion. Uh, and to understand the changes in American Christianity, we need to understand politics. Among many Christians, that there also seems to be a susceptibility to conspiracy theory, you know, there was a recent study that came out that said that evangelicals, of which we would consider ourselves ones, were the most susceptible group to the Q conspiracy. So why why is it that you know Christians who presumably, you know, God has entered that God shaped vacuum in their heart uh, would be susceptible to conspiracies that uh, others would not be, or not to not to the same degree? Yeah, it's um, it's a puzzling question. It's a troubling one as as a person as I am of of the of the Christian faith to to see that. You know, I was on a recent conversation with a with a um, scholar who who was talking about how these conspiracy theories have um, existed throughout Christianity, and, and really, I mean, conspiracy theories are a part of human life really since its beginning, but within Christianity too. And you saw manifestations of it in the 20th century with with various sort of biblical prophecy books that that came out. And a sense that for people of the Christian faith, that there's something beyond and behind what we see before us. Because as a person of the Christian faith, there's this life in this world, but there are principalities and powers, to use a, a Christian term. And I think part of what's happened is that that idea of principalities and powers has gotten co-opted and hijacked in political causes. It's quite troubling. I mean, a good friend of mine, Francis Collins at the National Institutes of Health, and Francis is one of the great scientific minds alive today, helped decode the human genome, map the human genome, and as a person of the Christian faith, has publicly spoken about this concern that he has among Christians in the context of COVID-19 and and vaccines. I'll just say a a broader point too, uh, Cherie, which is the degree to which, in my estimation, um, faith has been subordinated to politics is a very troubling thing. Um, I mean, we all struggle with this, uh, and I do too. But I think I thought when I began my Christian journey that, you know, imperfectly faith would become the prism through which we would interpret life and human relationships. Um, and again, we all, we're fallen. It's a broken world. We all struggle with that. But the degree to which it's flipped and that, that the identity of Christians is political and people then use faith um, as a kind of weapon in that war, in that political war, they begin to proof text the Bible um, and even justify certain kind of savagery in politics and, and they use it for, for, for faith, it's, it's a really, really troubling thing. And I think one of the negative ramifications of that, not the only one, is you're seeing a huge generational disaster um, with, with younger Christians who are seeing what I refer to as a kind of moral freak show that's mm-hmm. unfolding. And this has caused them to move away, not simply from their elders, um, but often from the church um, itself. And, and the irony here is that, of course, as a person of the Christian faith, Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to lead you into all truth. So you would think of all the people out there would be Christians above all that would care most for truth. Now that we may get into this, this, this raises the question of how you ascertain truth. But as a concept, that is the notion of what is really and truly the way things are and how do you apprehend it and, and how do you come to know it, that is an issue that should be at the forefront for Christians. And I'm afraid we've gotten the reverse. 
Yes, jump in. Yeah, uh, so I I didn't know that uh, evangelicals are right now the most prone to the QAnon conspiracy. It makes sense, but I think we can actually understand that using just the tools we've already brought brought up in this conversation. So we've already established that politics has become much more about identity, and that Christianity is fading out of its its prime position that it had throughout the 20th century, uh, the the Protestant Christianity that. You know that my, you know that my my parents kind of, you know, the goal of of Jews assimilating was to assimilate to sort of the WASP world, and my my wife is her parents are from Korea, and they too, you know, the Korean immigrants also aspired. They now most of them were Protestant, but they aspired to the sort of American WASP um, ideal, and as that's been declining, I think many Christians feel as though it's not just like, oh, they're being replaced. They feel actively attacked. They feel actively told, you know, it began with like, no, you can't have prayer in school. Uh, you can't have a Christmas tree or, or a, you know, a creche on the, on the town green. Um, so those were symbolic things that go back to the 60s and, this, and that wave of liberalism of the Supreme Court in the 1960s. Um, I think with the, the sort of the rise of, a, the, the rise of this new left, especially in the last 10 years, that's been very aggressive on a lot of issues, and they often see Christians as the enemy, largely over LGBT policies. But um, I think that we are entering a period in which Christians, uh, at least those those who are drawn to the QAnon, I, I think they feel that they are actively being attacked. I think that could help us understand why uh, evangelical Christians, in particular, feel attacked, feel that their identity is attacked, and therefore are drawn to a uh, conspiracy theory that explains who the bad guys are and shows them how to fight back. Yeah. Well, let's talk about truth telling for uh, just a second. And that one of the things you have both written about, uh, it's an interesting phrase, but you've both written about uh, epistemological modesty or epistemic humility. And I wanted to ask you about that a little bit in that it sounds a little bit like squishiness or relativism, like, you know, who's to say, how can you know? And yet both of you are well known for at times rather fiercely articulating a point of view. So would love to ask, you know, what is uh, epistemological modesty? And, um, and Pete, I'd also love to just sort of start with you and, and ask how in your mind it relates to faithful ways of knowing. Yeah, it's, um, I, I would say epistemological modesty at least in, in my understanding of it, um, l- let me let me actually uh, refer to a, to a person um, who's a very close friend of mine, Steve Steve Hainer. Steve was a very um, key figure in, in my Christian pilgrimage. He was youth pastor minister at uh, University Presbyterian Church as I was beginning my Christian journey, and um, and Steve was really at every key moment in my life was there for me. Um, and important moments, and through 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 real periods of hardship and grief too, uh, he became president of InterVarsity. Was there for 13 years, and then uh, became president of Columbia Seminary. Steve died uh, in 2015 of pancreatic cancer, and in the last conversation, this was a wonderful conversation. I have 11 pages of notes uh, from it with with him and Cheryl. Uh, Steve said that he believed in objective truth, but he held lightly to his ability to perceive truth, um, and. And, and Cheryl said that she had grown up in a period in which uh, there was a sense of being right was, was what mattered most and that we had to be open to being wrong. And Steve said, we need to make room for other perspectives. We need to make room for others at the, at the table. So the way I understand this is that there is an objective truth, but there's a subjective means all of, to that pursuit of truth. And none of us, uh, and I think this is a biblical concept, by the way, you know, and, and Paul writes in Corinthians that we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And he, indeed, the Christian theology would say that every part of, of us as human beings has been touched by some degree of corruption. So none of us can see truth as it completely and fully is. The best that we can do, the best we can do, is to see slivers of truth or part of truth. But What's essential is to have people in your life that can help you to see what you would otherwise not see. I mean, we all have blind spots and we all have a certain life experience, family of origins, countries that we come from, race, gender, and all of those things shape us. 
and they shape the way we perceive things. And I think our problem is, and, and again, I struggle with this as much as anybody, it's the notion that the way I perceive things is the way they are, and the, the way other people perceive them is not. Now you're right, taken to its extreme, this can become, you know, Nietzsche referred to perspectivism. In the crude version, it would be this notion that there's no objective truth, everything depends on perspective, you can basically create whatever script you want. I'm certainly not there, but, I, and this is really where John has, has, has helped me over the last you know, decade or so, which is to have people in your life and they have to be people that, that have standing in your life that you trust, that can help you to see things you wouldn't otherwise see. And the last thing I'll say about this Sheree is, part of this is just how do you view the enterprise itself, right? Um, C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield, uh, Lewis writes in Surprised by Joy about their friendship, and Lewis referred to first and second friends. For him, Arthur Greaves was the first friend. That's your alter ego. You start the sentence, your friend can complete it. Owen Barfield was a very different person, second friend, and, and Lewis described it as a person where you all, this person is the alter ego. Um, you read all the same books, but they draw all the wrong conclusions from the books but they had a deep 40 year friendship. It's actually, I think one of his earliest dedications in a book was to Owen Barfield, who he said was my first and greatest teacher. And Lewis describes the conversations they had. He said, we would go at it hammer and tong late into the night. You could feel the weight of the power of the blows of the other person. But over time there developed this mutual admiration and affection. And Barfield said that, that Lewis and he, through all of those debates, never debated for victory, they debated for truth, right? That's a huge difference. We debate most of the time for victory. We think I gotta defend my position and I'm gonna go at anybody who's, who's against it rather than thinking, what does that person see that maybe I need to hear? Maybe they won't fundamentally change my view, but maybe I'll understand them differently. Maybe their hierarchy of values is different than mine. And that's why they end up at a different, um, different different position but but john knows more about this stuff than i do sherry's original question was about whether we're sort of both moderates or centrists or or oh, epistemologically humble uh, but yet uh, you know opinionated or we make make arguments uh so i think that the key the, so the key psychology here that is now widely talked about is as pete mentioned confirmation bias motivated reasoning and once you recognize that we all do it we all do it uh, automatically and passionately, then you realize, okay, what's the cure for that? And nobody has ever found a kind of training that makes people stop doing that. The only cure for it is other people who have a different confirmation bias. And if you're in the right relationship with them, and Pete was describing those relationships, then you make progress toward, you know, towards heaven, as it were. And so thinking this way has really helped me understand what it means to be a centrist. I consider myself a centrist, a centrist Democrat, I would say, because, you know, people think, oh, a centrist, like, oh, is it, you know, so we're, we're going to, you know, half condemn Nazis or we're going to, you know, be in the middle on, on everything. No, it's not about, it's not about like I'm in the middle of the two things. It's a realization that when you are a member of a team that's passionate, you're almost guaranteed to not find truth those epistemic correction mechanisms are not working in, in your passionate team. And David Brooks, a, you know, a really a mutual friend and inspiration for both me and Pete, uh, he had a great column. I copied, this was years ago, but he was, oh, he was being interviewed, that's it. He was being interviewed. And the person calls him a moderate in the moderate middle. And he says, uh, he wants to take issue with that. He says, I'm a moderate, but I'm not in the middle. And, uh, and what I mean by that, I think being moderate is seeing politics as a competition between partial truths. And like in this era, we have competition between security and freedom, between achievement and equality, between mobility and cohesion, and both sides have a piece of the truth. And often you want to be radical on both ends and try to balance. So it's all about the balance. Anyway, this is a modern restatement of John Stuart Mill in On Liberty Chapter 2, where you, you know, you you have to have that competition of perspectives. And it doesn't mean you always come out in the middle, but you've got to consider multiple perspectives. So John, earlier you talked a little bit about social media. And I think at one point in a talk somewhere, you said that if you were to try to develop a system to destroy democracy, you really could not do better than Twitter. But both of you are on Twitter. Both of you are uh, kind of in the social media world. So I wanted to ask you both about the effects of social media, but also more practically, 
how you both managed to swim in the waters without being poisoned and, and what those of us listening might be able to learn from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I'll, I'll start this time because I've been writing about this recently. So what I meant by that is I, I've long been looking at American democracy or any country, uh, especially any multi-ethnic democracy with a lot of diversity. Uh, again, there are benefits to it, but it, it's harder to cohere. And so you have to look at what are the centripetal forces pulling you in and what are the centrifugal forces blowing you out? And when you have three television networks and only three, that's a really strong centripetal force as is having a common enemy. But when you have microcasting and all that stuff, you know, uh, then th- those are centrifugal forces. Uh, and I, I came to see that Twitter and Facebook after 2012, they built what uh, Tobias Rose Stockwell calls an outrage machine, an outrage platform, that they were huge enhancers of centrifugal forces. So that's what I meant by that. Um, now, how do you, of course, it does a lot of good too. Let's never forget, you know, Facebook creates enormous value for small businesses, for people who love cat videos, whatever. Twitter is, is enormously effective as a way to find information quickly. I mean, Twitter really does do a lot of good things, but, but it's one of the nastier platforms for, um, uh, and so I don't know, I, just, I try to be very uh, positive. I try to be helpful. I mostly tweet about things that I think will be helpful to people, especially understanding the, uh, the other side. When people attack you or criticize you, for the most part, just don't do anything because it'll go away in a few days. Pete, um, uh, what are your thoughts? How do, you, how do you stay sane or whatever? I'd say that there's, there are several things. One is just a very simple, I guess, tactical issue, which is if I wonder about whether I should send a tweet, I try and tell myself I'm going to wait five minutes. And I mm-hmm. think... Every time I've done that, I think I've deleted the tweet. Maybe there are one or two occasions where I, where I have not. But again, John being the social psychologist knows this better than I, but everybody knows experientially if you're on Twitter and, you, and you're human, you read certain things and you get sort of angry or something is triggered in you. And so cortisol may go through and your first reaction is to, is to strike back. And you just have to be aware that that's happening and you just have to try and... and you know, self-monitor. The second thing is I do try and think, and I do this in my writings too, again, not nearly as well as I should. I try and think about people whom I, whom I admire and think, what would they think about what I'm saying? My wife is one of them, Cindy, Steve was one. Somebody like John is, or Mark Laberton. I mean, they're different people in different areas of my life that I think I admire these people and what would they think about what I said? And that can be a corrective as well. But it's easy to get to get pulled into this. You know, I, I'll just tell an anecdote um, jo, with Joe Klein. And you'll remember, Sheree, Joe was a friend of mine in the 1990s. Joe jo was a, at that time a journalist for Newsweek. And we were close friends and had mutual affection. Like a long story short, when I went into the Bush administration, Joe thought I went over to the dark side. He was a critic of the Bush administration. I thought he was extremely unfair in his criticisms of, of Bush and the administration. When I got out, he and I had our debates publicly, and you can just Google Joe Klein and Pete Weiner, and you can see how, how, it, how it went. I justified my back and forth with Joe because I said, look, in my estimation, he threw the first punch. You have to defend yourself. That's the way it goes. You know, I'm not going to be a patsy here. I'm not going to be passive. I've got an argument to make, and I'm going to make it. But it didn't sit quite right with me. And I think Cindy, because she knows me best, knew that. Anyway, I made an overture to Joe, didn't go anywhere. But then in 2015, I reached out to him on email to try and get together. And we had a nice conversation, actually, a very nice back and forth. So the timing turned out to be right. Remember, this is years after the Bush administration had left. So we had breakfast at the Jefferson. And I guess fittingly, Joe and I came to the hotel from different sides of the street. And almost before a word was said, we embraced and we had this really lovely breakfast and we reconnected. The reason I tell that story is a couple of reasons. One is I'm not immune to these feelings when political conflict can cause you to have strong reactions. And secondly, to reconnect with people or to stay connected with people in a political environment like this is hard work and it requires intentionality uh, and it requires a longing to want to 
connect, probably some degree of grace and understanding and a sense of what's my role in this, not just, you know, these are my bill of indictments against the other person, what they've done against me. Well, we're going to turn to questions from our viewers in just a second, but I really don't want to do that before we address one of the most important questions, which is we've talked a lot about some of the centrifugal forces kind of pulling us apart. And there are a lot of people hurting, a lot of people who have experienced, um, you know, eroded or broken relationships as a result of conflict and difference. And uh, John, maybe we can start with you about how we both individually, but also within the institutions and communities that we are in, can be agents of, of hope and healing. One of the insights that I got from reading conservative writers is the emphasis on low and mid-level institutions. You know, people on the left tend to focus just on like, there's the federal government and then there's individual activists and you know, the French Revolution, they tried to wipe out everything in between. But those are the things that make for a good civil society. And so I think right now, this, the culture war, the politics that have so invaded college campuses, they've been there all along, but they really blew up in 2015. I wrote an essay, The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff in 2015 about these things. They've now flooded into companies, into high schools, even middle schools. And I think all of these institutions used to be and can be again, places where people have a job to do. They're there for a purpose and they can do that alongside people who have a different political identity. But when you turn, when you make everything be about political identity, as is now happening in a lot of schools, schools commit to anti-racism. Now it's great to be against racism, but they mean the particular ideology of Ibram Kendi, which is all, everything is focused on, you know, conflict between groups. Um, so I think we need to find ways to address racism that don't polarize people. We need to find ways of, in which employees can have voice in their companies, but yet they don't bring in all of their personal political agendas and demand that leadership acknowledge their values. So we have to realize we are in danger of really blowing apart here and Congress is almost unfixable. Well, no, there are some important things we can do for Congress, especially changing primary elections. That's the most important single thing, I think. Um, but you know, outside of congressional reform, I think most of us can take action in, in, our, in the places, our places of work or our schools or churches, synagogues. You know, as Pete's story, I think, was really enlightening that it was a spontaneous thing that you guys felt like embracing. And that often happens. There's a conflict with someone, but part of us wants to make up or, or will readily accept an overture. And so the best piece of advice I can give is be the first one to make that overture. In every argument, the other person is right about something. They might not be right about the thing that you're centrally focused on, but we're always centrally focused on slightly different things. So if you can acknowledge you know, uh, I was pretty harsh with you. And I, I think, you know, when you said X, I, I think you're actually right about that. It's amazing what happens when you acknowledge that the person is partially right. By the power of reciprocity, they will often come right back and say, yeah, you know, I, I reacted. I was just, you know, spur of the moment. Or I, was, I was angry and you know, I'm sorry. And I, you were right about. So, um, you know, humans are, are tribal. We easily are provoked into conflict, but Part of being tribal is also really good at reconciliation, burying the hatchet. So be the first one to make the first move. Agreed. So we're gonna to turn to questions from our viewers. One of the first questions I'll ask comes from Jonathan Canary. And he says, Alan Jacobs writes in his book, How to Think, that it is impossible to think for oneself. And if it were possible, it would not be desirable. We always think in relationship and community with others. Do you believe this is true? And if so, are there specific choices we can make as persons or leaders to promote better thinking with others? Jonathan, I'll toss that one to you first. Oh, yeah. Thank you for that nice softball. I'll, I'll, stay, I'll take a swing at it. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think it's literally true. We, we, are, we are capable of thinking by ourselves. But I think the gist of it, the idea is that we do our best thinking or our deepest thinking or the thinking that's most likely to lead to growth. And, and you know, Pete and I both told stories about, about that, about how we grew from, from such encounters. Um, the, there's a lot of interesting work in psychology on how reasoning 
like human reasoning is really, we're really bad at syllogisms. We get a lot of things wrong. It, it doesn't, it's not a, you know, evolution didn't do a very good job of giving us uh, reasoning, it seems, unless you see reasoning and language as having evolved to basically help us manipulate others and interact with others while guarding our reputation and doing impression management. And so, um, and, uh, so there's a, a, a Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber are two that have what they call the, uh, the argumentative theory of reasoning that we evolved reasoning in order to argue um, and do social manipulation. And so if you think about it that way, then Yes, you better pick a good community, as we've already said, if you have a community of religious scholars or uh, something I've always been impressed with when I go to Washington, D.C., is there's a whole community of people, le you know, left and right. They all know each other. They respect each other. Uh, I, you know, so I, I love that about Washington. Uh, that's, a, I think, a, there's a healthy policy community there. Um, even if Congress is not healthy, the, the, you know, the intellectuals, I think, uh, often are. Uh, so I think the Alan Jacobs quote is right in that way. Find a good community, find a place with good norms. Uh, and uh, this is why, again, Twitter and other things are so damaging is that they actually, they bring up the worst of our interactions with each other uh, rather than helping us be better than we otherwise would be. This comes from Michael Murray and he asked, what's involved in building relationships that are strong enough to deal with intense differences? Uh, that's a great, that's a great question. What about building relationships that, that can survive intense um, disagreements? Um, I, I guess I would say, you know, several things. Um, one is sometimes you find out in, in intense political times, just how deep those relationships go. In my experience, if, if the relationship is built primarily or almost exclusively on politics, then it's just harder. Mm -hmm. um, but then I'm not quite sure what the, what the relationship is. I, I, I don't, I don't mean to imply that those relationships aren't important or meaningful, but if that's all that it's built on, then it's kind of more on shifting, shifting sand. I would guess in both of your experiences, there are just relationships with people who have traveled the journey with you, um, who have been with you in times of joy and times of sorrow and times of grief uh, and who have an interest, invested interest in you uh, because they care for you and they, and they love you. Yeah, we've had a couple of questions come in. I'm looking at both ones from Randall Paul and Deborah Christensen who kind of go about it the other way to ask, how do we debate the most important issues of the day? You know, especially issues on which there are uh, irreconcilable ideals that cannot honestly be compromised involved. And how do we do it in a with civility in the midst of such a highly polarized and hyperbolic environment. John, you want to take first crack at that? Yeah, sure. And I would just say that uh, the older ideal of let's all get together and talk um, or, you know, it, within a company, a lot of companies have an all hands meeting. Let's, you know, I'll talk and encourage people. Oh, you know, speak up. Uh, I think that's no longer really possible or advisable um, because people come to anything thinking, what are they going to tweet or post? And the line between what we're doing here in our company or our school and my life on social media, there's no longer, there's not a lot of a wall between them. So I think that, and, and Pete used before the phrase performative, performative politics, uh, especially for young people who grew up with social media, everything is performance. And so there's really no point in, in having a debate or discussion with a lot of people because it's gonna turn into this performance and people can't be honest. Uh, so you have to have very small, uh, very small groups and uh, a commitment that nobody's gonna record this or nobody's gonna report it out. It's very hard. Uh, the more we are tied together, the harder it is to talk, unfortunately. I'll just say out th 30 seconds. I'm sorry, I'm long-winded too, but, or I'm long-winded, but first there's a long now foundation. And before the debates, what's required is that each person who's debating has to express the view of the other person mm. in a sufficiently fair-minded way that that other person says, yeah, you got my views. So that's a very good exercise. The second is simply to be able to identify what the differences are and name them, not necessarily reconcile them, but say, this is where our, our points of departure are. And the third is that there has to be some kind of explicit or more implicit understanding that you can hold a different view and still be a good person. Uh, and often the debates don't really, you don't send that signal to others. Well, thank you, Pete and Jonathan.
Finally, as promised, the last word to Jonathan and Pete. Jonathan, the floor is yours. Given that the one of the, the themes here is the, is the best of Christian thought and the best of religious thought, I could certainly end with the, the quote that is really that I've used throughout my career studying moral psychology, which is, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own? Um, and that is just such a deep piece of, of wisdom. But I think it's important to note that this, this is a great truth that we get from many of the world's religions, that we are too judgmental, too quick to, quick to attack each other. We need to slow down, be more forgiving. Um, and so I'll, I'll end with this wonderful quote from a Chinese Zen master, Sen San in the eighth century. He wrote, the perfect way is only difficult for those who pick and choose. Do not like, do not dislike, all will then be clear. Make a hairbreadth difference and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against, the struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Thanks, Jonathan. And Pete, last word is yours. I just want to re reinforce and say publicly again what I've, what I've said before, which is the Trinity Forum is doing a terrific job in an, in an era in which institutions are failing um, the Trinity Forum is just a beacon. So I really appreciate what you're doing. And it's, it's, it's been a, a, a real honor to be with you and, and with John. Um, yeah, my quote is uh, from uh, a poet, Christian Wyman, who wrote a book called uh, My Bride Abyss, which is a really um, a book that had an impact on, on me. So I would recommend it. But there was a quote of his in it that I thought was opposite what, what we've been talking about. And so Wyman says, the spiritual efficacy of all encounters is determined by the amount of personal ego uh, that is in play. If two people meet and disagree fiercely about theological matters, but agree silently or otherwise, that God's love creates and sustains human love, and that whatever else may be said of God is subsidiary to this truth, and even out of what seems great friction, there may emerge a peace that, uh, though it may not end the dispute, though neither party may be convinced of the other's position, nevertheless enters and nourishes one's notion of and relationship with God. With this radical openness, all arguments about God are not simply pointless, but pernicious, for each person is enthralled to some lesser conception of ultimate truth and asserts not love, but lesson, not God, but himself. Pete, Jonathan, thank you. It's been great to be with you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations. <laughs>